0: Hey there, welcome back to the podcast, Women in the Middle. I'm your host, Susie Rosenstein, and I'm so glad to be here with you again for this week's episode, which features another interview with someone who has some pretty interesting and thought-provoking information to share with Women in the Middle. Now, it's another one of these interviews where the guest voice is a little lower. (laughs) It's another guy. Today, we're talking about adoption and assisted reproduction from a midlife perspective. Now, what I mean is that we're going to be taking a look at a variety of issues related to what my special guest refers to as the adoption constellation. That's the areas of adoptees' sense of identity, attitudes in adoption, policy, legislation, openness, search and reunion, and step adoption, all from the midlife lens. My guest today is clinical psychologist Dr. Michael Grand who has been publishing research in adoption since 1983. Now, I met him about the same time as a student in the psychology department at the University of Guelph in Ontario, Canada. Michael co-directed the National Adoption Study of Canada. And it was through this work that we discovered that we had something quite unique in common. It turned out that Michael and I were both step-adopted. That's when a step-parent formally adopts the child of the other parent. We dive more into this during the interview. Michael's been an activist for all members of the adoption constellation. That is the adoptee and the original extended family, as well as the adoptive and extended family. He's won several awards, including the David Kirk Award for outstanding contributions to research and adoption. In his latest book, The Adoption Constellation, new ways of thinking about and practicing adoption. Michael confronts the many facets of adoption and presents the concept of adoption as embedded within a wide constellation of relationships. I'm sure you'll agree Michael brings a compassionate understanding to all members of the adoption constellation in his work. He draws on a lifetime of personal experience, research, and clinical practice and challenges conventional ways of thinking about adoption. As you'll hear, Michael is a passionate advocate for openness. He explains why there is a psychological cost to denying identifying information to adopted individuals and their birth kin. And he also draws important parallels to offspring of assisted reproduction as more and more of them are now growing up and seeking answers to their own identity questions. I'm sure you will get a lot out of hearing this interview, so enjoy. Hi, Michael. Thank you so much for being with us today on the Women in the Middle podcast.
1: Oh, I'm so pleased to be here with you today, Susie.
0: I, you know, who would have ever thunk it that you being my thesis supervisor a gazillion years ago in the mid-80s would have led us to this interview about adoption and the related issues in midlife?
1: Well, life takes us on interesting journeys, and it all makes sense looking backwards, but rarely makes any sense if we try and project into the future.
0: That's so true. I was really excited to talk to you about this topic because, you know, I don't find a lot of people talking about adoption-related issues as we age. So in my case, my father was adopted as a baby at six weeks old, and we're going to be talking a little bit more later about this phenomenon called step adoption, which has affected both of us. And then since, you know, since I am traveling in a circle of midlife women, I find that more people than I thought have adoption in their family in some way or another. So can you talk a little bit about about what adoption means to people as they
1: age? uh, Well, let me just first respond to the fact that you know so many people now who have something to do with adoption in their life that a very famous uh, sociologist named David Kirk, uh, really the godfather of research in adoption, estimated that approximately one out of four people have some personal relationship to adoption, whether adopted or not. So it actually represents a huge part of the community, whether you're the sister of someone who was adopted, or the parent, or a cousin, or a friend, Everybody seems to be interconnected with the phenomenon. The The area of middle age and adoption has received very, very little attention in, in the both the clinical literature and in the uh, research literature. I come at it from both of those uh, perspectives. And the problem is we never ask these folks what's going on in their life. It's and so when true. you do start asking them, and when you start asking that question, all of a sudden you recognize that adoption is not a one-time legal event that typically happened at birth or any time in the next five or six years. But adoption is a lifelong process of experience in the world. And in that sense, one can't ignore it through the entire lifespan. In, in midlife, Adoption takes on special kinds of meaning, because at this point for so many, they've, people have started having their own families, they've raised their families, the kids are about to go or have gone off in, uh, into the world, typically to university, to college, or to, uh, uh, to the workplace, and all of a sudden there's this opportunity to sit back and start reflecting On what it meant. And it it really depends on who you are in what I've called in my book, actually I named my book, uh, The Adoption Constellation. It's where you are in the constellation of the adoption, who you are, because the experience of an adoptee is different than the experience of an adoptive parent, or the experience of a first parent, sometimes also called a birth parent. Each of these folks have a different kind of, uh, of a sense of who they are in the world. For the adoptee, the issues of, do I matter to other people? Does my life make sense? Do I feel a sense of personal efficacy or control becomes central? As they think about the relationships that they've had up until this point, and they think about where they are are in in the flow of life, in terms of how they see themselves moving from this stage of life to an older stage of life. That's, they, so,
0: that's so interesting because as you said it, I was imagining what you might say, and that key theme was not something I expected you to say.
1: What did you expect?
0: I just didn't think it would be quite so deep about actually mattering. I thought it would be more about connecting.
1: Well, I actually think that mattering is one of the key issues in, in adoption, particularly for adoptees. Think of what happens. You're born into the world. Decisions are made about you. And the primary people whom one would normally expect to serve as in, in a parenting role are, are t- taken out of that role. Because of adoption, now you know we we use words like um, "I was given up for adoption it's a horrible phrase, and it's a horrible phrase because it says, "I was cast aside, I was just given away, I was given up i didn't matter to anyone I wasn't worth anything but if you think about the typical situation when a young woman is forced into having to make a decision about whether to parent her child or not. And you think that the, um, I never refer to them typically as the father as much as the sperm source says, I'm not in the game. Her parents say, count us out. We don't want you to, to raise this child. The social worker or the, um, the lawyer wants access to the child because they have a waiting couple and finally, this young woman, typically poor, typically young, and typically without resources to be able to stop this, this um, tsunami of decision-making in a crisis moment that's being made by everyone else but by except her. And finally, she says, I give up. I can't fight you anymore. That's the giving up. It's not the casting away. Another way of thinking about this phrase is to say to give up the child as if lifting up. And when one lifts up, one lifts from an inferior position to a superior position. In other words, to someone with more power and resources than you have. Let's face it, the rich don't give their children to the poor. It's the poor whose children go to those with more resources. And so when you carry that sense that not understanding what the full meaning of to give up for adoption really means, for many adoptees, they say, well, I guess I didn't matter very much to anyone. And they felt a lack of control because these were decisions made for them, not by them. And then when they try and gain access to information, they're stuck. Because we typically have laws, particularly in the United States, there are so many places where um, one is not allowed to gain access to information about one's origins. And without having that kind of information, you're always left vulnerable because you have a deficient narrative that you can tell about yourself. You're always missing chapter one of your life. that's That's so interesting. And particularly at middle age, when you're reflecting back on a good chunk of living, trying to figure out who you are, how you got here, and how you fill in that missing piece that's left open. And in many cases, you're not allowed access to it, at least in, the, in, the, in, uh, in terms of gaining access to legal documents. Now, i'm i'm proud to say that in in Canada we've opened up records in almost every um, province in the country and over 90 percent of adoptees and birth parents now have rights to identifying information of the other party and in the United States um, birth parents don't have those kinds of rights but many of adoptees do and so when you've raised your kids and your kids have started to go off into the world and you feel they've They've, um, you've done that part of your life. It's time to reflect again and say, so who am I? And I need to have that information to know why I have aptitudes and attitudes and body shape and eye color and, and, and a sense that this is the way I react emotionally. And I don't know anyone else who's like me. And it's in that kind of circumstance, especially at life transitions, like kids leaving home and going off uh, perhaps to, to, to university, that people start making decisions that they need to know more about who they are and, and what their origins were all about.
0: Yeah, that makes so much sense because these transitions create a pause and sometimes you're not expecting the pause, but you're overcome by the pause because it is a time to think exactly. when, when your life just isn't naturally as chaotic as it was, or sometimes um, sometimes I call it a wake-up call too, where sometimes something jarring happens in your life uh, with your family, with your parents, with an illness, with kids graduating and moving, but there is a transition, some kind of a change that does cause a lot of reflection, and it's so common in midlife. And one of the things that you just said about certain states being closed reminded me of the experience I had about 20, 25 years ago when I started to look into my father's adoption. Now, my father died in 1976, um, but I did end up speaking to somebody at the adoption agency in Manhattan where he was adopted, And they told me that because I'm not him and I'm not his parents, my grandparents who are also dead, that I didn't have access to any of the information.
1: Now think how silly that is. First of all, don't you have a right to your family's medical history? Don't you have a right to know what grandparents and uncles and aunts that your father might have had or siblings that your father might have had? that you should have the right to know what their medical history is so that you can start making good decisions for yourself, particularly preventive care. And it, it just drives me very angry <laughs> <laughs> when I when I hear say, I'm sorry, I have the information and you don't have the right to it. Now we're going to get to some interesting stuff. You see, it's one thing to say, have a, a, a social worker say, I'm sorry, but you don't have the right... To know who you are, and and Susie, this has says as much about your father and who he was as it says about you. And each of you carry something very special—not a carbon copy of who your ancestors were—but you have you do carry enough genetic material to say that your propensities in the world, given a particular kind of environment, are or stressor that you would encounter, that it will bring out these characteristics. I think that you have the right to know who you are, where you've come from, what your medical history is. No one's entitled to a relationship, because if you say to me, Susie, I don't want to talk to you anymore, and I hope that never happens, (laughs) but if if, um, you were to say that to me, I have to respect it because you have the right to establish the boundaries around your own life. And I feel that way about anyone who's who's engaged in search and reunion. But I think if people can do it, and if they have the courage to try, I think they will learn so much about themselves and find an inner peace that's missing when that other kind of peace, not the P-E-A-C-E peace, but the P-I-E-C-E peace that's missing in their life that will help them to put together their narrative, then the real piece of their life can come. They can finally feel that they walk in the world as complete people, as whole people, because they have a narrative that makes sense. And that's why I encourage everyone to search no matter what will happen. I once met a, a uh, and it was a person in her, in her late 40s, who went searching for her birth mom. This is the worst story. Then I'll tell you some good ones. <laughs> the worst story is that she knocked at the door, and uh, on the other side of the door, the woman opened the doors. The the person said, "I know uh, I'm. i My name is, and I believe that you're my birth mom." And the woman said, "I should have aborted you," and she slammed the door in her face. Uh-huh. I said to uh, this woman in in therapy later. Are you sorry that you searched? And she said, Are you kidding me? I had to search. I'm glad I searched, because at least I knew who that woman was who slammed the door in my face. Now I'm telling you the worst story. Wow. Now let's make sure we put the best stories on the table. Awesome. But a vast a vast number of people who engage in search and reunion do so with a desire. First of all, it's like walking on eggshells. They're very careful about how they approach the other party, always fearful that it won't work and that they don't want to make a, a, um, offer a misstep. But a vast majority of, the, uh, of those who search and, and have re- reunion manage to create a, a strong connection. It may not be the same as a mother-child relationship or a father-child relationship. But it 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 can be a deep relationship, and I can only encourage people to to take that that movement. And let's go back to your dad now. Yes, <laughs> you went you went to try and find out about your dad. The uh, metaphorical door slammed in your face by the social worker. <laughs> and you were stopped. That's today, true. That's you know it sure is. But today it's a lot easier to. Uh, to conduct a search. For one thing, the internet and Facebook has connected all sorts of people who never expected that they'd be able to find relatives. The other way that people um, can find each other, and this is a real revolution, is the use of uh, DNA registries. With groups like uh, Ancestry and um, 23andMe and so many of these other DNA Companies and then uploading your information to a directory, people are finding all sorts of distant relatives. So, not just distant relatives, I mean, it will be distant relatives, but they also have some chance of finding first or second degree relatives. And people can work their way through uh, various families to find their way back to make connections. I just um, was in contact with a friend of mine. Who was a child of assisted reproduction? He's been searching for over fifty years for the, his uh, the sperm source that brought him into the world, and he's discovered thirteen half siblings oh as God. a result. Um, so, it. it I, I a, for another friend of mine who's been a leader in in um, the. Uh, adoption activist community to open records, and yet has never been able to find her own birth family. Uh, again, was found by by someone uh, because of a DNA registry, and she's found her way finally after over 50 years of searching, has found her way back to her birth family. So some real interesting and exciting moments can happen. We. Go ahead, I'm sorry.
0: It's okay. So can you talk a little bit more about assisted reproduction and midlife and how that all plays in?
1: I think assisted reproduction and midlife are are very important. Many people are delaying having children much longer than most of them had expected, and then when they try and have kids, as you know, uh, they have found that the biological clock has been ticking and there aren't very many minutes left on the clock to have kids and they they struggle to have children and sometimes what is necessary is that one use either a sperm, an egg, a a surrogate who will carry the uh, the fetus uh, to term, there are all sorts of possibilities. And most people in assisted reproduction, both the medical side of assisted reproduction and the people using these services think that this is simply a matter of technology, of working out the way to, to uh, maintain a pregnancy, to, to not lose the fetus, to not have a spontaneous abortion, to increase the probability of an egg being fertilized by donated sperm, or, or how, whatever the, the particular uh, fertility challenge the, uh, the person or couple may be facing. But I think and I've written extensively on this as well in my book, The Adoption Constellation, um, that the issues in assisted reproduction are the same as the issues in adoption. Because what you have is you have a situation where parents are bringing up a child who may not share DNA with them. Either uh, we'll share half of the DNA, as in step adoption, an equivalent Uh, situation in adoption, or where they share no genetic material with them. And as a consequence, that would be similar to full adoption. And so they assume that if they say nothing to the child, that the child will feel that the child is the full genetic child of both parents. My experience over and over again, clinically, is That when the children of assisted reproduction finally learn that they were adopted, that that uh, that they were the result of assisted reproduction, they almost always say, "I knew it. That's it. Now I understand," (laughs) because they sense something was wrong, something was different. One of the parents made a different kind of commitment than the other parent. One parent seemed to hold off. The other parent seemed to be much more fully engaged. And almost always, the dynamic I've just described reflects how much genetic investment the parent has in the life, in, in the creation of the life of that child. And so, I think that all the issues about how to talk to your children about assisted reproduction come to the fore. And in midlife, with people having children later, and then finally they have to talk to their kids about this because the child has the right to know what their genetic heritage truly is and if they delay if they're frightened if they don't talk about it and it comes out and believe me there are very few secrets in life that are ever kept (laughs) if it comes out late then there's always such a sense of um, a betrayal of trust when the parent carries a lie for so long and then the child finds out by accident.
0: Hmm. It
1: happens in adoption. Um, A colleague of mine that I I taught with at the University of Birmingham in England, I saw him about a decade ago and he told me, he said, You never guess, Michael. I just found out I was adopted in his fifties at this point. And I said to him, Really? And we had a great conversation. I said, How did you find out you were adopted? He said, My nine year old nephew told me. Oh my God. Wow. So I want I want the people who listen to this podcast today to recognize that it's much more important to talk about the truth. Than to build a life around a lie, because that lie will eventually be found out. Building a life around a lie distorts personal relationships. People know it. Look at when people have affairs; it does that. When when children, uh, when there's something about the child's past that's never shared, they feel that it always has an effect on the quality of the relationship. Since many of the, of the people in middle age will be at the point where they want to talk about their children, maybe we should just have a, a little, uh, say a few words about that.
0: So, yeah, let's talk uh, about absolutely. the children.
1: Well, I, I, when, when I counsel parents about talking to their kids, I use one very simple mantra. I ask them the, uh, one question. I ask them, could you have lived your sex life based on your first conversation that you had with your parents? Could you have had a successful adult sex life based on that conversation? And the answer is always no. Always <laughs> no. Well that that's... There's, so much, there's so much more to learn than what you're told as a ten year old or twelve or thirteen year old than what, what you need to know as an adult different stages in your life. A good option but... talking about adult is very similar. When we have kids who have come from horrible backgrounds, backgrounds of abuse, backgrounds of violence, backgrounds of neglect, we don't share that with a six-year-old telling them in full and intricate detail what that experience was like when they were too young to remember it uh, cognitively. We start by, by talking about how you're Your birth mom wasn't or your birth dad, your birth family weren't able to look after you and they were worried about you having the best possible life you could and a life that they knew they couldn't give you. And we start with a story like that. Mm -hmm. And when we talk to a a 10-year-old, we say, you know, your your mom was having a lot of difficulty. Um, People were very mean to her. They hurt her very badly. And because they hurt her so badly, she wasn't able to look after you, is another story. And as a 14 or 15-year-old, we can start telling more of the more intimate, intricate details of that, of that story that led to that decision. Contrast that with a parent who says nothing. And, mm. and think about what it's like to live your life always wondering. It's better to know and integrate with a loving, supportive parent in front of you than it is to know nothing because they, people think they're protecting the child from, from this horrible event. One of the worst things that adoptive parents and in, when they're in midlife, their kids are going to be difficult because they're going to be teenagers. <laughs> <laughs> and teenagers are not always the easiest creatures in the world to live with and one day that kid is going to say to you I hate you you're not my real mom uh, or that uh, or and, and when that happens sometimes adoptive parents come back in and say things like you should have been more grateful to me mm. these are just the wrong words in the situation when a child child says that the child is expressing the pain of loss and that if parents can't recognize the grief that the child feels for that loss, the emptiness of not being able to, to find out information about that loss and the lack of people who will sit with them in that pain that comes from loss, that's a very different way of dealing with it than to strike back out and tell the child that he or she should be far more grateful because um, you took them away from that slut in the back of the 49 Chevy.
0: <laughs> and I'm oh telling you, wow.
1: I'm, I'm being coarse here, but these are the kinds of words that people have told me they've been, that have been said to them. And, and, this doesn't heal a relationship, this exacerbates the pain within the relationship. So yeah. there's there's work, there's work to be done. There's lots of good work to be done and opportunities to grow closer. And it's, here's the paradox, that adoptive parents often worry that the more open they are about adoption, the greater the possibility they'll lose their kids. But the truth of the matter is, that And there's good research behind what I'm about to say, that the more open they are, the more entitled they, they personally feel to parent, and the less they fear they will lose their child.
0: Mm, that's just, so, so powerful.
1: And just the opposite of what you would expect. And, and the same story works for uh, children of assisted reproduction. with with more and more parents as they approach midlife, having children well past their, when they would typically and on their own without assistance, uh, couldn't have children. They have to be prepared to talk in the same way to their kids about the circumstances that led to their birth, the meaning of what their relationships are to them, and both the parent who, has contributed DNA and the parent who has not contributed DNA have to share in that conversation with the child of what the child means to them and and to hear the concerns and the fears that the child may have about that part of their, their personal narrative that uh, they didn't expect that they would hear.
0: Wow, that's that's really powerful, and and I wanted to ask you with assisted reproduction with sperm banks, that sort of thing. Um, I know uh, somebody in this situation, and, and she's a, a young woman now, and she has uh, had the opportunity to meet several of her half-siblings. Um, do mm-hmm. you find that the research is as supportive of those kinds of connections as it is with adoption and yeah. birth parents? Yep.
1: Uh, overall, absolutely. Wow. Are there are there exceptions? Yes, there are. Remember, it takes a lifetime to build a relationship. It's, very few people have instant relationships, and so you, when people who shared genetic material meet, and they've lived a whole life without that experience, it takes time to find communality of interest and experience. And and so patience is needed (laughs) in these circumstances. I I I went to a reunion. I'm sorry, not a reunion. I went to a a 50th wedding anniversary of a first cousin of my father's. And I'd lost all contact uh, after the adoption with my father's family. My dad had died, like yours, and my mom remarried. And that was the end of uh, my relationship at that time with my father's family. And through my own efforts, uh, I've made contact with my dad's family. And one of the people kindly invited me to this 50th wedding anniversary. And it was in in, uh, El Paso. It was a wonderful time. I'd never been to Texas, let alone (laughs) to a place like El Paso. And uh it was a great time. And everybody referred to me as the long lost cousin. <laughs> but what I noticed immediately is that all the people who were at the same level on the family tree as I was, and the, my dad had twenty-six first first cousins, so there were a lot of cousins. There were some who said, oh, hello. And they walked down and got a drink and went off in their corner to talk to the people they knew. And there were some who came up and said, how did you find your way back? And it's so wonderful to have you back in the family. And, and we, we didn't know, but we missed you and we're glad you're here. Mm. And I'm, I'm sorry, I'm going to choke up as I tell you this. You have to expect all kinds of relationships and all kinds of possibilities. Listen, Susie, you don't get along with everybody and neither do I. And none, of your <laughs> your and none of your listeners do either. That's there are some true. People We dance better with some people than other people.
0: That's so true. And I'm so glad you brought up this issue of step adoption because, you know, you first mentioned this to me decades ago, and I had never even identified with this as part of my life. I didn't know what to call it. My family background has always been kind of strange because with me, it was my mother who died and my father remarried, and my stepmother formally adopted, my sister and I. So we have this step adoption in common, Um, and again, like, I had never identified with it, and in fact, I didn't, I guess the first time that it formally came up as a bit of a hiccup was the first time I applied for a passport, and I needed my birth certificate. (laughs) I didn't have my birth certificate because of, whatever. It just wasn't in a file folder where I would expect it. And my mom, my stepmother had to say to me, cause I, ha- I had to order one from where I, the hospital where I was born. And she said, I just want to let you know, I think I was, I was 15 or 16. She said, I just want to let hmm. you know that my name is on your birth certificate, just so you don't have a shock. And I have to tell you, oh. thank God she told me that because I think I would have passed out And it never even occurred to me, like I said, that this was a thing and what the implications were. So can you talk a little bit about how step adoption played out in your life? Because I know you did something quite significant as an adult.
1: Sure. Sure. Oh, there's so many things to talk about. Uh, Step adoption, the step adoptees are are really the step adoptees of the field of adoption. It would... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> what's, re- inter- what's really interesting for me is that, first of all, the adopt- step adoptees know the melody, but they don't know the words. Mm. I ran the first ever ad- a study of step adoption. And when I advertised for step adoptees and I described who they were, they were adopted by... They were the biological child of one parent and the adopted child of the second parent. And those two parents were related uh, through marriage. And almost every single one of them came to the study. And the first thing they said to me was, I never had a name to describe who I was. Mm. And I realized I'm a step adoptee. I'm not a stepchild. I'm a step adoptee. That's step exactly it, because, I,
0: yeah, that's it. I don't feel like a stepchild at all. Like, I am one with my family. I was fortunate to have grown up with a mother who loved me. I didn't feel step, but it is different, for sure.
1: Exactly. And the second thing is, is that the state produces a legal document, your birth certificate, that is fraudulent, because it doesn't list your mom's name on it. Exactly. In the same way that my birth certificate listed my adopted father's name as my birth father. Mm -hmm. And my father was written out of history. And this really troubled me that he had been written out of history, even by the state. And every adoptee experiences this. Every uh, child of assisted reproduction experiences this because, again, their legal documents will list the biological parent when that parent may not be the biological parent. maybe may be the psychological parent, but not the biological parent. Mm. So the state produces fraudulent documents. In my own particular case, running this study, I, um, my brother came to me, also a step adoptee, same situation as I'm in. And he uh, said, interview me. And I said, I can't interview you because I'm, I, I we're related. I can't uh, have you as one of the participants of my study. He said, well, I'm still curious what you're going to ask. So why don't you uh, interview me? I want to hear what the questions are. And it really led to our first uh, intense and um, uh, emotional conversation about what our experience had been. And at the end of that conversation, we looked at each other and we, say, we said to each other, why are we carrying the name of our adoptive parent when uh, he was not a good person and he treated us so badly? He was very abusive uh, gentleman. And we both made the decision at that moment that we would take a very large uh, bag of gold down to the government office <laughs> and my brother and I and all of our kids Our four kids uh, all decided to to take back my dad's name, our original name. Wow. And I have to tell you that living in the world um, with my original name, with my father's name, provides such a sense of authenticity that I was missing when I was known in the world by that other name. And I want to share something that I think uh, your, your listeners will appreciate. I sent out a, um, an email to my department and very briefly outlined my history and said, from this day forward, I'm no longer Michael Sobel, I'm now Michael Grant, I'm returned to my original name. Every woman in the department came up and gave me a hug. And every man in the department ignored the whole email and never said a word. (laughs) And I am convinced, I am convinced that they thought, how in the world could he give up his reputation by throwing away his name? Mm. Whereas I felt if the work had integrity, it will live regardless of whether it's under one name or another. I, Mm. I tell you all this because it's made me much, much more sensitive to what it means to be a woman who in parts of our society uh, puts pressure on her to change her name and live in the world by her mate's name and not by her own name. Um,
0: Yeah, I have to tell you that um, I did not change my name and certainly having a connection with my, now, it was my, I was step adopted and didn't have to change my name because my father was alive at that point. But it's definitely one of the reasons to stay connected to my authentic self. It, I couldn't change my name. I just had no interest in it. Exactly. It made me uncomfortable.
1: Well, it took me almost 60 years to get my <laughs> act together and, and return to my original name. And I feel so proud to walk in the world now by that name, even though the, uh, the bulk of my professional career, um, I lived under a different name. And, and I'll tell you one other funny story. I gave a, a talk at a very selective, uh, little conference in a, uh, at a retreat in Connecticut. And for the first day, every time I said something, nobody paid any attention to me. And the second day I stood up to give my talk, and I said, it's a very exciting moment in my life because it's the first time I'm speaking under my uh, original name and not my adoptive name. And I feel so good today to be able to do it. And I continued talking and they, everybody stopped me and said, but what is your name? And I said, well, you knew me under this name and now my name is Michael Grand. And they went, oh, I know you. And all <laughs> of a sudden, everybody was treating me with respect, asking me to sit with them at lunch engaging me in conversation in the halls and I thought oh my goodness so shallow these people
0: <laughs> wow wow but
1: it it showed me the power it showed me the power of what it means to walk in the world with your name so I hope that every one of the people who are listening to this podcast choose the last name that reflects who they are as a human being that defines who they want to be known as and carry all, with pride, all of the characteristics that come with that family name. And I think it will make a big difference in how they walk in the world. I know it sure made a big difference for me. And that's why I believe so strongly that adoptees have absolute right to their history. They should know who they are, how they came into the world, and and know... What were their roots? What sacrifices were made in their life so that they had a life to live? It's so important, and it's the same for for children of assisted reproduction. And let me just—we know we haven't talked much about birth parents, and Mm -hmm. maybe we can just say about that? Susie? Yeah,
0: absolutely. And I want to apologize. The phone has been ringing. I hope um, the listeners, I hope you can't hear it too much out there. I you couldn't hear it. Know. You <laughs> couldn't hear it? Okay, good. I apologize. Uh, yeah, let's hear about the birth parents a little bit. That would be wonderful.
1: Well, as I said earlier in in, uh, in the podcast, um, many birth parents are treated as if they cast away their kids. In my experience working with birth parents particularly birth moms, it's, it's hard to get birth dads to identify themselves. But for birth mums, for first moms, most of them carry that child in their heart every single solitary day of their life. Mm. Think about that child, how that child is faring, wishing they could find some way to make contact again with that child. They remember that child on birthdays. They remember that child on significant uh, holidays throughout the year and wonder what that child is doing. And I'm so glad that there is throughout North America, and I'm proud that I played a small part in opening up records across North America to allow people to meet each other and to heal that wound. For you see, as I said to you, for, for many birth parents, they feel as if their life ended at chapter one when their child was placed for adoption. For many adoptees, they feel their life began at chapter two because they're missing chapter one in their life. And this need to reconnect even if from a distance, if that's the only way the person emotionally can deal with the relationship, it's important that they have that opportunity to fill in as many of the missing pieces as possible to create a personal gestalt, a sense of wholeness in their life. And I, I can only encourage those folks who have placed whose children were placed for adoption that they be open to meeting their adoptive children, their children who were adopted, that they won't hate you for it if they have the opportunity to hear the story of how it came to be that they were adopted. Many, many of the people in midlife are going to get an email or a Facebook message or a letter, or I hope uh, not a knock at a door, but it may happen, because I don't think that's the right way to start the relationship. I believe it should start more at a distance and each person giving permission to move closer. But for those who are birth parents, the chances of you being found are very high. And I urge you, to take up that opportunity up it's scary it's emotionally difficult and it's healing and finding the courage to take that step will have a profound effect upon you the other part of this story in terms of openness is that in many families where the parent had had a child placed early in her life went on to marry to raise other kids. Many of these birth moms never tell their subsequent families that they had a child that was placed for adoption. And this really makes it difficult for everyone. Mm. When the adoptee does come into their life, the second child born to this birth parent gets bumped as the oldest child. And (laughs) many of them have their nose out of joint as a consequence. Yeah. And it doesn't have to be that way. Most families of birth parents, subsequent families of birth parents, are excited when this new person enters their life. And I think that if people can open their hearts to, to, expanding their relationships with, with strangers who are seeking out connection that they will find it a very gratifying experience. So for birth parents who are listening to this chat today, please, please talk to your kids, talk to your spouse, tell them your story. They'll understand why you've been, you've had so much difficulty with certain emotional moments in their lives, if if they knew the burden you were carrying by holding that secret inside, share that secret with them. They'll support you. They'll be ready. They'll be ready with open arms to uh, welcome in new members of their family. Listen, there can't be enough love in this world. We have to find more. and We have to find opportunities to express it to each other, and these yeah. are opportunities. People. Slam the door, really, they're closing their hearts and they'll carry that pain forever.
0: You know, you couldn't have said that better, and that's a perfect place to end. So much of what I talk about here on the podcast and with my clients is the importance of regret proofing your life and doing everything possible to make sure that you don't have regrets going forward. One thing is for sure that. You will definitely regret having regrets. <laughs> so, adoption is one of those areas that is so emotional and so complex and so important to focus on and make sure that you are being very intentional about your experience, either from the birth parent perspective, from the child perspective, and even the odd thing that the two of us have in common the step adoption perspective. So Michael where can people Absolutely. find your where can people find your book?
1: Well, the easiest spot of all go to Amazon. <laughs> <laughs> and, and just put in the adoption constellation and um, what I've tried to do in the book is to provide a deeper understanding of the experience of adoption and to try and crack it open. And, and I, I use that term intentionally because I believe that openness is key to uh, successful relationships for all parties to the adoption constellation, and uh, we have to respect them all. And we we have to find ways of um, of not holding back. We do that, I think, as you say. There won't be regrets later on. I think it's a beautiful way of framing it. Let me put one of the pitch in for a television show. Yes. Know the television show, this, this is us. It actually has a character, a main character who was adopted and they handle it beautifully and quite correctly in terms of the struggles he has with his adopted mom because of her inability to be totally open with him. Mm-hmm. It's really quite a a well done piece. So, read my book, watch the TV show, listen to your great podcasts, and uh, I think there are good things ahead.
0: Oh, my gosh. Thank you so much, Dr. Michael Grand, for joining us. You're very courageous to come on a podcast called Women in the Middle. It's just a reminder that you never know who you're going to meet in your life, how much you have in common, and how much you can share together. So we met decades ago in the Susie. early 80s.
1: Susie, you are one of the special people in this world, and I think you're, uh, you were doing a great service by uh, talking to people and sharing your wisdom. I want to thank you for doing that.
0: Oh, it's been a pleasure. So thank you so much for joining us today as an honorary woman in the middle. And you've really helped us understand this whole adoption thing and have been a major contributor in cracking it open. Thanks so I'll much.
1: Wear that designation. Oh wear that designation with pride. Thank you. <laughs> awesome. Bye.
0: That's it for this episode. I'm sure you'll agree. Michael helped put a lot of really important perspective around so many aspects of adoption and assisted reproduction. So much to think about from so many perspectives. And I was just unbelievably excited to share somebody like this with this kind of insight and perspective uh, with a midlife lens. So it's often a decision that uh, just has so many implications. And I know that this topic held so much interest and meaning for so many of you. I'm just thrilled that I knew somebody like this and could invite them in to the women in the middle community. Now, if you're ready to get excited about your life again, then I want to invite you to apply for my 50 Unplugged Mastermind, where you'll learn how to kick fear to the door and become the confident and brave woman you know you're ready to be. Just go to www.talktosuzy.com and book your 10-minute midlife funk-busting call to see if we're a good fit. And if you like what you've heard on today's episode, just head over to the Women in the Middle podcast on iTunes and leave me a review. Check out the show notes with more information and links at www.susierosenstein.com. Let's do this, ladies, one brave thought at a time. Thanks so much for listening.